I'm Dr. Adam Jirachi. And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. Chapter 13, Let's Pretend. After I was married, I channeled my creative energy into learning how to cook for myself and my family in a healthy way. And that really became quite a big part of my life. Coming from a post-World War II environment where most food was overcooked, frozen, or canned, and since my health was fairly fragile, having asthma and pneumonia, finally, when I was on my own, part of my liberation was finding ways to build my inner strength. In starting a new life, I began learning how to change my diet and to appreciate food, to learn about fresh seasonal vegetables and fruits and the locations of where various foods are grown. I approached it in a much more European sort of way, where it's part of a lifestyle. Developing a vision is really important when you're changing your lifestyle. One of those visions would be getting on your bike and going down to a local bakery every day to get fresh bread. You don't buy bread and put it in the refrigerator if you're in France. You eat it up. You go back again for another loaf the next day. This was a mentality that I started to cultivate. This new lifestyle was kind of a wake-up call. I literally started feeling more alive. Eating healthy food that was my choice also laid the foundation for me to explore myself on a deeper level. While I was changing my diet, I had a neighbor named Laura, who was extremely intellectual and very experimental, and she had introduced me to a book, Food is Your Best Medicine, by Dr. Henry Beeler. I've incorporated his Beeler's broth in my diet ever since. She also introduced me to Tai Chi, a form of martial arts. My basic instinct was always to learn something on my own, but I made an exception in this case to take a class together with Laura. The master teaching Tai Chi was a small Caucasian lady named June. I stood in line with the other students watching her move energy through the air with her hands as though she were holding a ball. It was only air to the naked eye, but as she continued moving her hands slowly, with incredible control and balance, I started to learn how to draw from the energy in the core of my being. I began loving the practice, and I thank Laura so much for the awareness she brought me. Contrasting my excitement of taking control over my life again in my social group and in my family, I was criticized. Just as in my youth, I was asked where it was that I had gotten these ideas. Some things never change, but the lack of support from members of my family would not impact me so deeply. The philosophy during my childhood and career was living my life for others and needing their approval every step along the way. At last, my priorities were really changing. The incessant internal struggle of making simple decisions was like a battlefield inside me. 
I would hear the voices of criticism giving me doubt and wrestle with my insecurities. Finally, making decisions that felt right for me helped me to begin to change the same pattern of needing approval from my choices. And so I persevered with these new avocations. Doing Tai Chi, like any Eastern practice, assists you in becoming more introspective in a non-reactive way. I began learning to deepen my belief in not being competitive, rather to essentially compete with myself, which would lead to self-improvement. The combination of doing Tai Chi and changing my diet reinforced my ability to be in touch with who I really am. I apologize for the complexity of this explanation. My mind was so cluttered and my emotions were so chaotic inside me that even though I was experiencing more clarity, I was only just entering the realm of self-awareness. I just had a lot of self-discovery to do in my own way. There were so many layers ahead of me that I had to unveil. Living in this little bohemian community of Beverly Glen Canyon filled with so much diversity and creativity, our house was filled with artists whose contributions to this day are appreciated by so many internationally. First call of the day, which was usually afternoon, was my husband's close friend and associate, Ted Templeman. Before I struck up a serious relationship with Lenny, Ted and I had a flash romance. He would graciously greet me and then ask for Lenny. The first words out of Lenny's mouth were, Hello, old sport. Then they would be off on the subject of the day. Their meetings at Warner Brothers, both being members of the A&R staff, which developed artists in their repertoires. Lenny was the head of A&R, and Ted, Russ Tidelman, and Tommy LaPuma, among others, were members of his staff. Warner Brothers had a stellar reputation for developing artists and giving them a real opportunity to cultivate their gifts without a tremendous amount of pressure from the company to proverbially pay them back. I may go out tomorrow if I can borrow a coat to wear. Oh, I'll step out in style with my sincere smile and my dancing bad rages. Alarming, courageous, charming. Oh, who would think a boy in bed could be well accepted everywhere? It's just amazing how fair people can be. For example, Lenny's best friend and number one artist was Randy Newman. Randy's songs such as I Think It's Gonna Rain Today and Simon Smith and the Amazing Dancing Bear were already getting around in the industry and being performed by various artists. But developing Randy as an artist was a little tricky. His voice was not your usual voice, but neither was Bob Dylan's. So the idea was to go in a studio and experiment and literally allow Randy to relax with the way he could deliver his own songs. And the proof is in the pudding. His song, Louisiana 1927, the state in which he was born, was and is a masterpiece. When Katrina blasted New Orleans in the Gulf Coast, it was Randy's song and performance after 40-something years that became the anthem for that natural disaster. His song, Short People, was a real test for the public to accept him on a commercial level, and it worked. Randy's true intention was writing a song about children, short people, with tiny little teeth. 
Randy's song, You Can Leave Your Hat On, was accepted by Lorne Michaels of Saturday Night Live to be performed by Randy at the piano, and this later became an enormous success for Joe Cocker. Of course, Pixar came into the picture, and Toy Story 1 and 2 and 3 finally landed Randy an Academy Award. After all, his Uncle Alfred had many Oscars on his mantle over the fireplace. Randy surely deserved to have at least one. When Randy went into the studio with Don Henley and Glenn Fry from the Eagles, Lenny's production of I Love L.A. ultimately became the anthem for Los Angeles. If you feel like reviewing the movie Beaches, listen to Bette Midler sing, I Think It's Gonna Rain Today. That always brings a tear. Randy was a fixture in our little tri-level house in Beverly Glen Canyon and would totally blow Lenny's mind every time he sat down at our upright piano in the living room, started tinkling the keys and in his gravelly voice sang songs to Lenny for the first time. The phone would ring and you never knew who it could be on the other line in the studio saying, listen to this. Before I knew it, Lenny would tell me, my God, that was the Doobie Brothers' next hit. There were those very fun times when Lenny would invite me to go to the Troubadour to listen to somebody he was interested in producing. On one occasion, it was the Jim Queskin Jug Band. Lenny always had his name at the box office door. We never had to wait. We always had free reign. He never liked to wait anyway, and as long as I was married to him, he had carte blanche at any venue. The Troubadour was more of an intimate environment. Many of our legendary artists, such as Carol King, James Taylor, played to smaller audiences there. Maria Maldur was the lead singer of the Jim Queskin Jug Band, and that evening turned into a most enterprising situation for Lenny and Maria when they later went into the studio and recorded Midnight at the Oasis. Usually, the second call of the day was Russ Teitelman, another member of Lenny's A&R staff. I had met Russ originally on Shindig when I was part of the regular cast, and he was a band member along with Leon Russell and Billy Preston. A Canadian artist named Gordon Lightfoot had written a song, If You Could Read My Mind, which Lenny fell in love with. That became a huge hit for LW as well as Gordon. The follow-up was Sundown, an album that Lenny decided to co-produce with Russ. Like Gordon, Russ was a guitarist, and so I have to believe that Lenny felt that after having the initial experience with Gordon, it would be good to have a co-producer who played guitar as well. But I'm sure there were more reasons why Russ was involved, because Russ ultimately produced Eric Clapton and Stevie Winwood, even Shaka Khan, to name a few. Russ was also an integral part of Lenny's and my social life. His sister Susan was married to Ry Cooter, who produced the Buena Vista Social Club. Rye was a very, very special musician and visited our home many, many, many times. Rye also was a great storyteller and went on and on about how the Rolling Stones brought him over to England to add his bottleneck guitar parts on some of their records when he was only 18 or 19 years of age, but he never got credit for it. One evening over dinner, the discussion turned to how Rye decided to become a bottleneck guitar player. The history of bottleneck began just before the Depression in the 1920s, when poor southern black blues singers and guitar players wanted to amplify their guitars. 
At the time, they didn't plug in their acoustics to a speaker. The next best thing was breaking off the neck of a wine bottle, filing it, and finding just the right size to fit their ring finger so they could slide it up and down the neck of a guitar, amplifying the sound, and also creating the sound you hear on just about every Bonnie Raitt song that gives you the sense and the taste of the blues. I used to save wine bottles for Rye because he was always looking for another good fit. Such a sweet harmony If you do the best that you can During this time, Lenny and I did revere our privacy. These visits from artists and Warner Brothers executives were not a daily occurrence, but randomly I might come home from shopping, visiting a friend or taking my child to the park, and walk into the house to find Phil Oak sitting in our bedroom with my husband. There was a very strange subliminal rivalry going on in these times for Lenny between his best friend Randy and the artist Lenny discovered Van Dyke Parks. Van Dyke had worked with Brian Wilson on Heroes and Villains and came to Lenny with an album's worth of original songs that still stands up today. The album is called Song Cycle. Randy contributed a song called Vine Street, which blends in with Van Dyke's compositions. In a musical interlude, Donovan's Colors is performed by our master at the piano. I always had the feeling with each artist that Lenny took on, he truly had an intense love affair and devoted himself in every capacity, which left little time for a relationship with me. Swinging along on the wings of a song An alliance secure, self-righteous and sure Why we things to say That the people would pay to hear us play Essentially, Lenny's mistress was his music. I learned very quickly to recede into the shadows. This was not solely because of how Lenny conducted his life, but my mental and emotional stability was very frail. The telltale fact was, one evening after I had spent the day with my child taking care of our house, while I did my chores, I listened to music and sang along. As soon as the front door opened and Lenny arrived home, he demanded and took action to turn off the radio or stereo so that he could have quiet. It's true, after being in the studio and using his ears all day and all night, that coming home to quiet was imperative. But we were both very young. We were both very volatile, and we were both unable to express our needs clearly. Well, it's a new day and a new season. Welcome back to Love's the Secret Weapon podcast, and thank you for leading us in, Donna. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Life every day is a new chapter, and this new chapter really opens up to a new 
entirely vast episode in in my life, the beginning of my marriage and relationship with um, a master music maker. Mm, For sure. And it's a bit of a change in the story, as our listeners will will realise, because your life is changing at this time. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed listening to all that music history, which I know we're going to go into uh, more today. But what I'm interested in, because I know we've touched on this a little bit before in previous episodes of our past two seasons, and we will again in the future. But you talk a little bit in that reading about an inner critic. And I think it's probably something that some of our listeners might have come across or heard, but they might not be quite aware of what this is. Can you take us to school about the inner critic? (laughs) Well, doctor, (laughs) Um, be my shadow, please. Sure. (laughs) Um, What I'm referring to is self-doubt when you think you're just conducting your life. You know, you wake up and whenever you wake up and you begin to do, you know, your chores or make the transition from hopefully a restful night to an active day. But your mind is always telling you that you're not doing it right. And your mind Mm. is always telling you that there's something lacking and it produces that doubt. And I always, I always had this other voice that was talking to me from spirit and it helped to balance me so that it appeared that when I was, you know, maintaining somewhat of a regimen in my life, you know, cleaning, making sure my house was clean, (laughs) learning (laughs) how to actually learning how to clean because Mm. I had never had that responsibility before, Mm. Um, you know, teaching myself how to cook, um, learning about how to maintain health, um, taking care of a, a new little life, my son, Joey, learning about him and, and who he was, dealing with uh, a, um, hmm, I'm going to call Lenny a perfectionist at mm. what he was determined to do in life. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, when you listen to his work, that um, I'm sure <laughs> most people would say that's absolutely true. I mean, he he he, so shuffling shuffling you know among all of those things and and then uh retreating from a life that I had lived for the first 21 years this was only a year after Mm. and and the adjustment was like taking off a layer of skin and growing a, a whole new one you know and and so that's why I think that critic was kind of raw and mm. and it can kind of create a lot of self-hatred, not just doubt, you know, because the doubt disconnects you from spirit. And to me, you know, that is all about love. Um, but, you know, and also then I think, you know, we were still going through the Vietnam War and we were just 
you know, leaning into the Watergate era. And I think there was a lot of fear in the general environment to support, you know, whatever doubts I was feeling, Mm. even though Mm. I have to say, Adam, I absolutely treasured my relationship, learning about who my son was. And he showed himself to me at such a very early, early age. Mm. And I think it's interesting talking about that whole idea of that wider level world situation or at least the situation in America and what was going on and how uh, you were all coming out of the 60s, which was a very hopeful time. And, and uh, you know, from the beginning, which we spoke about, which paralleled you starting with Dr. Pepper all the way through to the end, the assassinations of three very important people amongst other people and moving into this very different fearful time and I think we take a lot of that on and particularly that idea that you allude to that there's a difference between a voice in our head that can guide us or even alert us to danger but I think what can happen is that inner critic can often become distorted from the messages we are told by others you know the messages we come up with the messages our parents potentially tell us or or, you know, our caregivers, and also our own beliefs and ways of looking at the world, you know, Mm. particularly those very closed off ideas of I should be this, or I should be that, or I should do this, or I didn't do this. And, you know, that those very black and white ideas, and sort of recriminations, and Mm. there's not a lot of room for grey sometimes with that inner critic. Um, Mm. I like that idea that when we hear, uh, you know, I've heard this in psychology before, that idea that when we hear the voice of our inner critic or even the voice of our threat system, you know, that whole idea that we're, we're primed for threat from our ancestors because they had to be alerted to threat in case there was a, I don't know, a, a wild animal outside the cave door. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's happened since is we've still kind of got that threat system, which is probably a, a lot more on hyper alert than it needs to be sometimes. Although with COVID and everything else, some people would probably suggest it's it's understandably at high threat. But when we're at that high threat, we can't really soothe ourselves or, or connect with others or, or keep our fears in check. And, you know, this idea that when we hear that threat system or that inner critic kind of screaming at us, you know, you should do this or danger, you know, we can either see it for what it is and, and sort of dismiss it that way and say, All right, this is my threat system. This is There's nothing to fear. It's just my overactive threat system. Or if we feel it's trying to be helpful, we can say, you know, thank you for trying to look after me, but I'd like to try this. I'd like to jump into this unknown. Um, I know it's going to be scary. I know it might be anxious, but it's something I want to do. Mm-hmm. So what you've helped me to understand, Adam, is that um, I lived my first 21 years until I, you know, retired by following other people's um, measures of, you know, whatever I was supposed to do, whatever I was supposed to be, um, versus, you know, a child coming into the world, being recognized for who they are, which was my complete and total intention for my children to explore who they are and then Mm. to support them. Um, You know, I have to say that I was blessed because through everything, you know, I could do something that I, I truly loved to do. And that was to sing. And I'm completely grateful for that. But essentially when you have an environment that you're growing up in that you don't fit the mold, you know, and you're being told that this is what, you should be and this is you know what you are to me and then there's a lack of mm, 
self-esteem so that you, you become more and more disempowered to actually even try to be who you who you are. And um, you know, I've I've heard some lady friends of mine, honestly, through my life. Um, one example is because she was born a blonde, she was labeled, you know, ditzy and stupid. Mm-hmm. And she ended up being, you know, a brilliant woman once she let go of all of that um, identity that was, you know, imposed on her. Mm-hmm. Then another lady, you know, had just shared with me that she had a mother that never interfered with her identity. Mm-hmm. She gave her the space to develop, to be who she was. And, and I can see it in her eyes and in her smile, you know, that she felt at ease with being who she, who she was. Nobody, nobody tried to tell her how to be, uh, you know, <laughs> they let her be herself. Mm-hmm. Mm. without judgment and and so when you ask me that question about inner critic i think yes what you're discussing is that fight or flight mm. that that part of your brain the amygdala that has that to to help you survive but in when you have to survive in either a physical or mental abusive environment where you're you know you're confined um, you know, if, if you're finally, I, myself, I took my, I let myself out of the box. <laughs> and when I let myself out of the box at 21, 21 and a half, whenever, um, I literally was like an infant in terms mm. of developing, you know, and I had to learn how to make decisions, which, you know, has taken me the rest of my life you mm. Know, mm. to, to uh, cultivate and refine and, and trust, Absolutely. It's that it's it's really it speaks to what we've spoken about before, particularly when we covered some of the early years, that idea of parents who can parent in a way to help you develop the ability to discern and to make good decisions. And and sometimes when that doesn't happen, it can take a long time for someone to do that and to um, develop in that way. And certainly what we're speaking about here, you know, speaks to a lot of those ideas of Paul Gilbert, for example, talks about compassion focused therapy and this whole idea that we have these three systems and neither system is good nor bad, but if they're out of alignment, that's when it becomes a problem. So if our threat system is on hyper alert, then we're always fearful and, and it's very hard to do much when you're, when you're in that state of state of alertness and fear and there's the drive system, which is about achievement, which of course is a wonderful thing to set goals and to achieve. But if that's on hyper alert where we've always got to achieve, where we're never stopping, where we've never got that downtime, we've never got that ability to adjust our goals. It's just go, go, go. And then whenever they get frustrated, it's such a, a big problem. Um, and certainly I think you had a lot of that. There was this high, there's always this need for this high level of achievement. And so what can often happen is that third system, which is about soothing ourselves and not only soothing ourselves, but being able to connect with other people and so on can become a problem because if we're in hyper fear and, and hyper goal setting or, or hyper drive, then that room to be able to be calm, to bond, to set relationships can be compromised. Oh, my gosh. Well, if it wasn't for my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who, you know, passed away when I was seven years old, I would have never known. I would have never mm. known the difference. There just wasn't anyone else in my lo- in my young life. And um, possibly, you know, for some, I, I've been blessed because now I'm finally, for the last 25 years, you know, living with someone who loves me unconditionally. Mm. Um, and so I can, I, I can just put it in these terms. I can, I can show my ugly and <laughs> feel safe. Mm. 
Mm. And um, and that is that is a true gift, you know, to to show your trauma. And by the way, I really, really want to suggest to our listeners and I don't know if you've heard of him, but there's a doctor named Gabor Mate, and he has um, a film out now. The oh gosh, what is it called? Some, something about trauma. Now, um, I'll I'll have to get you the exact mm. title. Mm. It's 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 about you know trauma can be a gift, um, and and you can learn from it if if you're willing to face face the darkness of it. And um, since we're living in such a dark time, you know, so many people are coming to grips and finding the courage to, to talk about these terrible experiences in their childhood, which they have been locked up inside them. Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. for you know and and in some cases they end up in prison it's so misguided and then there's a you know someone that comes along and says well I'll listen to you tell me tell me about your childhood what what turned you into the adult that that you mm-hmm. you know you became and um that's the extreme but it's so prevalent it's anyway Thank you as well as my dear beloved husband and anyone who's willing to listen, and I'm finding it more and more, that more and more people have a heart to Mm. take the time, you know, to listen and maybe even witness a sign in in an expression in your face when there might be some pain that maybe you've never addressed. And they say, you know, how are you? What are you? What are you feeling right now? And gosh, we didn't live like that. I didn't live like that. Nobody asked me, how do you feel? Mm. (laughs) It's it's just like being in, you know, being a good trooper, a good soldier and and, uh, putting a smile on your face. But then what goes on inside? And literally, Mm. Adam, I'm sure that, you know, so much disease is manifested from that it's um you know i'm just thinking and i just googled the because when you talk about this idea of trauma i I think it's 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 rightfully becoming such a big thing at the moment that so many people are starting to talk about these things which have traditionally been something that either people have had to shut up about or push away or deny or or whatever else and i found the i managed to google while we were were talking the the documentary is called the wisdom of trauma Um, thank you thank you and i think that's available everywhere at the moment but also you know people are Oprah's got a book out at the moment. What happened to you? This whole idea about uh, about trauma and asking those questions and understanding where people come from. You know, when we can step away when there's so much division to try to understand what what shaped people and what shaped ourselves. I think it's a question we don't ask enough. You know, where did that come from? Where did that anger come from? Or where did that insecurity come from? Or or where did that perfectionism like you were talking about come from? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, when we can start to start to understand those things, I think they don't have as much of a hold over us anymore. Oh, absolutely. That truly does equal freedom. You know, when, when you can understand, identify and acknowledge you know, some, I call them, you know, archetypes. Um, when you, when you understand, you know, in my personal situation, you know, having never met my biological father, there's the archetype of abandonment. There's Mm -hmm. the archetype of rejection. There's the archetype of victim. There's the archetype of the orphan child. All of these 
you know, it goes on and on. And then there's the blood donor <laughs> that attracts <laughs> the vampire. And, you know, unfortunately, there are too many uh, of us on planet Earth that have fallen into that groove, you know, because we need to be needed. Mm. And there was even, uh, I'm boy, am I going to really stick my neck out? But there was even a comment from this doctor, Gabor Mate, who said, you know, one of the reasons I became a doctor, first of all, I was a product of the Holocaust and um, an, a victim of the Holocaust when he was, I think, only one. He was separated from his parents and both his parents. He, I don't know, mm. whatever. The, the, I don't know if he ever saw them again or if they were, you know, <sighs> destroyed in, in that. But mm. um, um, he was taken care of by someone who grabbed him, you know, during this whole chaos. Mm. And, and he said, you know, every doctor that he knew needs to be needed. And that's one deep reason they become a doctor Mm. and, Mm. and you're a PhD. So I'm not putting you in that category, (laughs) but I have a need for books, you know, (laughs) but listen, honey, I need you too. I need you in my life because I love you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You know, um, I was thinking about this because there is that, you know, everyone is that product of their environments and, and the environments we're in, whether we're young or, or whether we go into it at a, at a fairly young age. And you, you're talking about being 21, which is which is a young, young age. And, uh, you know, I'm interested in this. At this time, you talk very evocatively about being surrounded by music and you mentioned people who have become legends like Raikuda and Van Dyke Parks, Phil Oaks, Maria Mulder and, of course, Randy Newman. But it's interesting that as there was so much creativity from them, something that Lenny facilitated and and was a big part of, at the same time, you weren't performing. Though you sang at home, your music was really restricted, I guess, to daytime when you were home alone and, and you had moved out of that period of your life. And I'm interested in how that shift Felt, you know, were you so busy pursuing other modalities and, and looking into healing and looking into nutrition that there wasn't such a a big change compared to someone looking at it from the outside going, wow, that's a that's a big difference? Or was there a tension or conflict with the way that change had occurred? Actually, I think I want to call it, you know, like my voice expanded, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not into octaves, but um, mm. but in into other interests. I always maintained some time to vocalize, mm. Mm. and um, I, you know, I would do it in private, and sometimes it would be at night because you know Lenny's hours were quite all over the map. Mm. Um, mm. But um, it, you know, and of course. I had a young child, but his room was private enough so that if I bought this little upright piano and put it in the living room, it was far enough away for me to vocalize a little bit. Mm. So I, I managed to always find time and a, and a place for that. And I mean, it's just part of me that, gosh, I, I just always, always, even in this very moment, in this mm. very moment, um, I'm in limbo because uh, I just made a move and my piano, uh, the movers <laughs> lost the bolts to my oh. pedals. And, and it's just taking forever to get mm. a Steinway guy out here um, to put the piano together. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> when he does, it, you know, I'll, I'll be back, back in the saddle. It's, it's, music is very important to me. Music uh, in, in, as an ambiance for me Mm. to cook 
you know, mm. I love the, the various moods and rhythms, you know, and volumes <laughs> to cook by. Mm. And of course, my my little son, you know, at a very, very early age, when he was just a few months old, as soon as he could hold his little back up and sit straight, you know, I bought him a, a professional set of bongos and, mm. and and he began his his career, you know, at a very, very, very early age. So music was always part of his life as well. Mm. And and yes, you know, when when daddy showed up, you know, he needed his space and we had to respect that. And it was a bit intimidating. Mm. Um but um, I was also used to that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I kind of went from the frying pan into the fire on that level. Yeah, it's interesting that whole, I guess, idea of, you know, that perfectionism. And, and yes, the, the results speak for themselves in terms of that brilliant music that was produced. But at the same time, you know, there is a cost, I think, of perfectionism. When you put yourself so much into something, it can often leave very little time for anything else. And I think it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost of um, having to perform at such a high level that it can leave you very depleted. Maybe, and I'm only speaking from experience, I'm not necessarily speaking about anyone in particular or Lenny because, you know, evidently he, he was in the flow when he was producing. But I'm interested in how this translated into those early days of a marriage where, you're trying to figure out, I guess, who you are and or at least getting more in touch with who you are. And here's someone who's who's very, um, you know, wedded to his art and his music. How does that come together or, or what are the issues with that, I guess? You know, I, I have to give you an example. And I learned this a little, I kind of knew it while I was going through it, but I, I learned it later on. Um, I think traditionally the woman's role mm. um, in a marriage would be that the husband's interests come first. Mm. Um, and especially in a situation that I was in, um, if if I hadn't been who I was, <laughs> I, I didn't know, you know, if I had just led a normal life and wanted to be comfortable, you know, in my little household and whatever, mm -hmm. I might have not needed to express myself as much as I did. Mm -hmm. um, and if I had come from a family who hadn't suppressed me so much, you know, I might have been able to function more on my own and accept the fact that, you know, I'm married to a brilliant man who needs a lot of space and I can be patient and just be supportive. And, you know, in many, many, many cases, the children come first in that kind of a situation. And, you, mm. you know, you wait for the last one to leave the nest <laughs> and then maybe you go on a second honeymoon after mm. 20 years or whatever mm. and see if, see if there's a relationship. I couldn't wait that long. <laughs> You know? yeah. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't even wait, you know, a, a month or or a year because uh, that's just not who I am. But I'm sure, you know, in the right situation, um, a woman would uh, would sit back, just revel in his energy, mm. um, be so extremely proud and supportive and not have the need to you know, have too much interplay with him, just be supportive. Mm. And, um, but that's not who I am. <laughs> mm. Mm. 
I think I think it's it's such an interesting uh, idea, and it's so complex because there's so many different desires that people have or, or wants that people have, and and as you said, for some people that that support role or or that role in that way would be enough, but it it doesn't it doesn't sound like in this case it was going to be. Um, well, I'm not going to name names, but <laughs> I I knew very early on of a situation where a couple, um, you know, lived under these circumstances. And the wife was always at home and doing her wifely chores and living, you know, living within that, Mm. you know, realm. And the husband um, had a very you know, strong profession and, um, and even had an affair, but would always come home to the, to the little wife. Mm. And that, and that just continued for decades because that was her own level of expectation. Mm. Um, and whether she knew, or I can't imagine that she didn't have Mm. some inkling that her husband had some other interests, other, you know, someone else. And, but, you know, it's, it's what she was willing to accept. By the time I witnessed her ending, she was not a very strong person. Mm. So, and, and even turned to alcohol, you know, Mm. to kind of abate the situation. So, gosh, I mean, like you say, this is a very complex world and, um, Boy, I sure hope it untangles itself sooner than later because, uh, you know, love really is the answer if, if you can get to the core of it and take a little time on a daily basis to reinforce, you know, whomever you have contact with, even if it's just a look in your eye to be so sure that you're conveying that message of love. And so important at the moment. And I think they are things that we can control. There's so much that we feel we can't um, and there's so much that we can't. But what you can do, I guess, is that that attitude that you take just in those day-to-day interactions. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to shift gears just a little bit, I guess, given that bird's eye view of what was happening in the music business at this time, how did you see music evolve from what you had been doing to what was happening at this time at Warner Brothers, at Reprise, at wherever, I guess? Um, Mm. You know, yeah, what what was the change or what was the evolution? Mm. Well, I certainly think that, you know, artists like Elton John came more to the surface Mm. And um, and then, of course, James Taylor. I mean, the, after 68, when I retired, um, it gave birth to, well, it, there was a continuation of some of the artists that began. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Elvis had changed, then he came back. Um, the, um, I, I think the, the world of the singer songwriter was much more prevalent. Mm. Um, and, um, and then I think probably more and more psychedelics. So that, <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, when, when you listen to music, uh, you know, in, in the mid sixties, maybe some, I, I never did, but maybe some people only enjoyed music when they were, when they mm-hmm. were high or, mm-hmm. I don't know. But, um, but I think after 68, uh, it became much more of a, you know, a happy marriage between listening to music and getting stoned <laughs> and, you know, really, um, you know, getting into it as, you know, it was, it was uh, a way to live. And mm-hmm. for me, it just continues, uh, continues that way. And I think for so many you know, mm. I just heard a statistic on 
like streaming music on Spotify or Apple, that 50% of all music streamed comes from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Wow, there you go. Now, speaking of music, we're unveiling a new segment for season three of our podcast, and this is a chance for fans to come and speak with us about their passions, ask Donna a question to build. I'm so excited. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to speak to fans because, oh, my gosh, you know, on Facebook and Instagram and, you know, through the website and whatever, and also sometimes in public appearance as well. But to actually have conversations and share ideas, I'm so excited to include fans in our new season of our podcast. Absolutely. And to build our community through a focus on our favorite four-letter word. (laughs) Love. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good uh, clarification there. I like it. (laughs) While we're including our first guest into our podcast discussion, I would also like to set an intention of whatever we talk about, that the foundation is about love and healing Mm. throughout my life, throughout your life, throughout our guest's life. And um, really look forward to introducing our first new guest. It is my pleasure to introduce our first guest for season three. Howard DeWitt is Professor Emeritus of History at Ohlone College in Fremont, California, and was one of the original faculty hired by the college back in 1967. In a career at the college spanning 30 years, Professor DeWitt was one of their most esteemed teachers and researchers in history and political science, with a focus on political movements, multiculturalism and ethnic history, and a research interest in rock and roll. Professor DeWitt has written 31 books and many periodicals, including books on Chuck Berry, Rodriguez, and Elvis. An esteemed academic and a fan of Donna's, we're happy to have Howard join us today. Hi, Howard. How are you? I'm fine. I hope I can live up to that introduction. (laughs) (laughs) You've already lived through it, Howard. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And Howard, may I congratulate you and your wife, your beloved wife, for 50 years of wonderful, loving marriage. Uh, I applaud you. Well, thank you. And, you know, I only have one thing to say about that, Don. It's been the best 10 years of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes people don't laugh. They go, no, she's been wonderful. Can you imagine putting up with all this, you know, we, 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 one night we got invited to a Roy Orbison special party in San Francisco. He was getting ready to do the black and white and the the, uh, the technician who set up the equipment came in and he sat next to my wife. And the whole time my wife was smiling at him and whacking him on the shoulder. And later he came over to me and he said, you know, this is the greatest night I've ever had in the music business. This guy's name who set up the drums was Bruce Springsteen. And he just, oh. my wife had, my wife had no idea who he was. And he's, he's <laughs> talked about that to a number of people. So oh, it's yes. been a wonderful journey. I recall Bruce Springsteen. I mean, Adam, please, uh, you know, join. I, mm. I, but I'm, I'm just reflecting about uh, a wonderful concert when I was working with James Burton. He was part of uh, an extravaganza, and basically everybody, like Bruce Springsteen, um, and all of the participants of that concert were just drooling over working with Roy Orbison, who's just the most fabulous, fabulous rock and roll singer. 
Well, next to Elvis, I would say. Yes, yes. We have to keep our priorities straight here. Yes, Elvis is still number one. I have to remind you of that. As a former retired professor, these are things I need to keep up. Well, this is the most important. This is what we, this is our bread and butter on this podcast. And we're going to talk about Elvis, of course. But to take us back a step, Howard, I'm interested in how you first became aware of Donna's music. Oh my God, you don't want to, do I have to tell this story? I'll be fired if I don't. Okay, here's, here's, the, here's the story. And you'll, you'll die from this one. So in 1965, when I'm just a wee young lad in my mid-20s, I got a job at a place called Cochise College in Douglas, Arizona. And I'm 25 years old. I'm a single man. I'm in a small town. And so there was a rodeo club. And the rodeo club said, would you take us to L.A.? as a sponsor. And I said, of course I would. So I went over to LA and I put these kids down in uh, near, right near Disneyland, the Orange County Rodeo. And I took the college car up and I got to see Donna. I got into Shindig somehow. And I got, I didn't, you know, know her. I mean, I knew who she was. She didn't know me. And I got into and saw Shindig. And I tell you what, what always uh, amazed me were, were two things. One, she could sing with Bobby Hatfield almost like she was an African-American singer. I mean, there's uh, songs that you can find on the internet where she sounds great. And then the next time I would see her on TV, she would do a pop song like Petula Clark. And the next time it would be Dusty Springfield. I must be seeing things. Oh, no, it can't be true. I must be hearing things when I hear her say to And I was just amazed at the range of her vocal talent and just the range of her talents. And I never thought I would ever see her. And I bought, you know, all my friends would ch chastise me because I bought the, the beach blanket, uh, those, those uh, <laughs> soundtracks for her songs. And so over the years, you know, I would look at her stuff and then all of a sudden I become Facebook friends with her. And then I have my students emailing me and saying, boy, this Donna Lauren is really good. I taught rock and roll at the college level from 1976 until even after I retired until mm. 2012. And they said, how come you didn't do more? on Donna Lauren, I put her in with the girl groups and, you know, single girl singers. So I discovered her through Shindig and uh, Jimmy O'Neill and all that. And, and I was just amazed at her level of talent. And then I look at others who had massive hits and had eight or 10 hits. And it's, she reminds me a little bit of Jackie DeShannon in that Jackie DeShannon never had the large term commercial success that she should have. And I always thought the same thing for Donna. I mean, it's not that she didn't have success, but I'm talking 10, 15, 20 hit records like Dusty Springfield. I just used to tell people that Donna Lauren was the Dusty Springfield of, of Sunset Boulevard. And my friends would always <laughs> say, 
you're the weirdest damn person we've ever talked to. <laughs> Howard. <laughs> now, Howard, how can I ever live up to everything you've just said? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's all true. The, you know, the, I'll tell you, those, those um, duets with Bobby Hatfield were incredible because you don't sound like the Donna Lauren that I heard before those duets, you know, where he had that sweet sort of pop sound. You had a very throaty sound with him. I'm sure it was due to him. Well, that's my soul coming out, you know, yes. sometimes, sometimes I sing from the heart, which I generally do. And sometimes my soul jumps in there as well. So, <laughs> But you know what, what this shows you is this shows you more about me than it does you because it shows you how we categorize singers Well, you have to sound this way or this way or this way, when in fact, you can sound four or five ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's definitely for a female. It's a mood thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and this is a mutual appreciation society. It's fantastic. And I love that story. And I love that history that you've got, Howard, that all the way back in the 60s and how awesome that Donna was included in some of your classes in your horse material. Because as we've said, and, and as we probably made you blush, you've had a quite a distinguished career in academia. And I, I think a lot of what you've researched kind of speaks to music in this 1960s, because... Uh, I know you've investigated, amongst other things, the conditions that led to cultural conflict in the early part of the 20th century in the United States. But you're also an expert in rock and roll. And you've written, for example, two books on Elvis, one in the early 80s and another in the 90s. And as we're talking about this idea of of soul and R&B, you know, we're interested in what led you to writing about Elvis specifically. Well, that's a, easy, easy to explain. In 1980, I met uh, Chuck Berry, in, mm-hmm. in San Francisco. And I decided to write about him. I did. And it was Chuck Berry was the first first person to mention to me. He says, you know, Elvis was a black man. I said, no, no, Chuck, Elvis is not a black man. You know, Elvis is a white <laughs> hillbilly from me. He says, no, no, Elvis is a black man. And what he was saying basically was that he had a musical soul that few artists did. Mm. And uh, and then, and as a kid, well, let me give you another quick story. When I started buying records, uh, it was it was 1954, I was 14 years old, and I went down to the House of Music in Seattle, and I asked for, uh, that's all right, Mama, by Elvis. And the guy mm. said, we don't have that. You know, we don't. And I said, Sun Records, I had never heard of it. So I went down to Jackson Street in Seattle, and there was a shoeshine stand, barber shop that sold 45s. And I said, can, can I get uh, an Elvis Sun record? He said, we don't have any. He says, but here, buy this. It's Arthur Crudup's That's All Right, Mama. So that's how I got into it as a kid. I was into rock music, and uh, then I never outgrew it. <laughs> oh, am I glad. I am glad that you are a perpetual teenager. And besides, you know, this, the stories that you know, Howard, and the, and the story that I lived through with Elvis, I wanted to share a story with both of you that I thought is just very, very, um, I I can't even put a word to it. It's just beyond. Um, A dear mutual friend of my husband, Jared, and I, uh, his, his best friend, Phil Sloan. When he was 12 years old, his father bought a guitar for him. He didn't know how to play it, so he went to Wallach's Music City to buy strings and to start to learn how to play. And when he arrived, all the people were standing outside. No one was inside. It was dark. There were guards outside, not letting anyone in. And Phil Sloan walks up to the door and holding his guitar. And the doorman thought he belonged there, so he let him in. <laughs> he walked in, and he walked up to the cash register. 
and he asked for some strings. And Wallach's Music City has two stories, had two stories. And down the stairway walks Elvis. Wow. And, and, and Elvis says to this young lad, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm buying strings for my guitar. And Elvis said, do you know how to play that thing? And he came over to Phil and Phil said, no, not really. And Elvis put his arms around this young man and played him Love Me Tender. Wow. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> if that isn't the epitome of soul and soul brothers and... Yes. You know, and just my favorite four-letter word, love. You know, that, to yes. me, that's, that's who Elvis just emanated. Love, love, love. Yes, yes, he did. Please Wait, continue. A, no, no, I want to ask you a question if I can. Was Jared, your husband, in the Fantastic Baggies? Yes. <laughs> Tell him I was going to end this podcast if I don't get his autograph on my vinyl album that I'm going to fire myself. So tell him. No, that no, he, no. He was... <laughs> no firing. No, no. <laughs> no, he'll know I'm joking. But yeah. But no, you know, just, just as a, a little side, Elvis, by some of the uh, heptomorons of the present day, they said, well, gee, he took all this black music and he stole it. Well, he didn't. The only person that he covered who ever had a big number one hit was Big Mama Thornton, Hound Dog. And he made sure that people like Arthur Big Boy Crudup didn't die till 74. And he got royalties from Elvis till the day he died. And the colonel said, we can put our name on this. Elvis said, nope. The royalties are going to Arthur Big Boy Crudup, who lives in Mississippi. I know he's in Chicago most of the time. So Elvis people don't understand this. He was so supportive of the African-American artists and he, wa he wanted to get their money. I mean, he was just so good. I mean, the Colonel was a, can I use the word jackass? Out of, uh, it was just, you know, a jackass. And that's and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know I'm trying, holding myself back. <laughs> it's very restrained. I like it. And, and that, <laughs> that, that's such a cool story to actually hear that, that respect that Elvis did have for Arthur Crudup, who of course wrote That's All Right Mama and, and many other songs that Elvis was involved in. And I think this really speaks to this idea because I know Donna in the past has spoken about the inspiration that she was around both on uh, Shindig and, and before that with her producers, uh, Jesse Hodges, for example, who really turned her on to R&B sound. And, mm -hmm. and uh, Donna, I think it's, you know, I know you've told this story before, but did you want to, and of course you've got a couple of different Elvis stories, but did you want to give us a little, a little uh, reminder of your Elvis story on Shindig? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, uh, Howard, I don't know if you heard this story, but, you know, I was a virgin too. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and what I mean is on my 18th birthday, and that was my, my status, um, I received a phone call on the set of Shindig, and the, the set was pretty dark at yes. that moment. I'm walking through a dark set to a telephone on a podium, and um, the sound of a man's voice came over the phone inviting me to get into a limo because he was instructed to take me to Elvis's house for my birthday. Oh. And I was very um, reticent, to say the least, because of my age, because of my responsibilities, and I declined. Um, and um, I never did actually meet Elvis face-to-face. -face. Did you meet Elvis, Howard? I, I didn't, but before I answer that, shame on you, Donna. I'm really <laughs> disappointed in you. <laughs> Just kidding, of course. No, I never did. He, I didn't start working on the book till long after he died, and uh, 
I, although I, I think I did an article early on. I, in the 70s, I was still writing that uh, academic pablum and that crap that they want us to write, you know, about stuff that nobody cares about. And finally, I understand that one, Howard. I hear that. <laughs> you do. <laughs> so, so but, but the fact to get invited like that, Donna, it tells you. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm sure he watched you on TV. And I'm sure Elvis thought what I thought is, what in the hell is wrong with this industry? This woman doesn't have a top 10 hit record. And you should have. I know you probably don't like me saying that. But I mean, you had you had plenty of stuff out there that was great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm very, um, I'm very accepting of my life and the way that, you know, uh, everything kind of rolled out. And, um, and so as long as my vocal cords are still open and I'm still breathing and I can sing, I'm kind of a happy person. So it doesn't really have to go on vinyl or anything else. Mm-hmm. And I'm, but I am so delighted that Dr. Adam and I have collaborated on my autobiography to be able to discuss my life and and in, and now to begin a new season on the podcast and include uh, an array of people that I've never had a chance to speak with, such as yourself, and what a privilege and honor it is for me to include you in my life on this intimate level. Well, I appreciate that. You had a great career. I mean, you know, you were the Dr. Pepper girl. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was supposed to be your friendly pepper upper, yes. Yeah, yeah. And then and then the movies got crap from my friends about the movies that you know I had <laughs> first I had I had to sneak off and then I, I didn't get married until I was I didn't marry till I was thirty year thirty one years old. And so I took some of my girlfriends to see these movies and you know, yeah. it was cra- it was crazy. <laughs> but you know, I, I was considered to be maladjusted and then finally <laughs> I think in my thirties, people accepted me for what I was. So. Well, I think I think you liked some innocent fun. I think that's yeah. that's kind of the the common remark about the beach party movies, and you know, even even the the veterans from Vietnam that were entertained by it, you know, as they're going through the rigorous uh, events of war, you know, had a brief interlude of some joy and some happiness to experience and um that's a valuable thing and we should all have that in our lives whether it's you know a label of of silliness or not because i would i felt the same way howard i was a little embarrassed you know to be in a slapstick situation because you know i was taking life very serious as a 16 year old to support Mm -hmm. my family and uh, you know and all of a sudden i'm on a set with buster keaton i'm like what Yeah, Don Don Rickles, Phil Silvers. People forget mainstream, big time Hollywood actors were in those movies. Yes, and and Bill Asher, and um, Mm -hmm. you know Norman Torog as a director. I mean, there was a lot of substance, and I think that's probably why they've lasted, even though they're they're very silly. Well, let me tell you what the Vietnam veterans said to me. The Vietnam veterans were treated so badly when they got home, and even before they got home that when they watched those movies, they, they loved, this is the California they always remembered. Those movies mm-hmm. were the California, and, and for me too, this, this is what I grew up in. You know, this is what I liked. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, burning down buildings and all that other stuff I wasn't interested in. You know, I've written about mm-hmm. it, but, but mm-hmm. I'm not interested in the Haight-Ashbury while it was fine. And I always liked the beach movies and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 
and, and there's just so much talent out there when you look at the, the blossoms, how incredible they were. And, yeah, oh, definitely. And I mean, the entire cast and, and the the band. I mean, you're talking about the Wrecking Crew as the band. Yes, yes, yes. I, I got I to tell you this story. It's 1966, and I don't remember what episode it is. And, and I've got this this young lady, you know, I'm single, she's single, she's my age. We're in Douglas, Arizona, where 20,000, 30,000 people live, no one cares. And I said, now the Blossoms are going to come on. And I said, these girls are great. They're black girls and they're from, you know, Los Angeles. So you come on and you're in the middle of the, you're in the, middle <laughs> of the Blossoms. And, and, and this woman says, what, what's that white girl doing in the middle? I said, oh, that's Don, Donna Lauren. That's, a, that's another story. But oh. I, have so- I was going to say, Howard, you're a super fan. It's fantastic. <laughs> and well, fun. and Adam, you and I always talk about, you know, the, the concept of we are all one, mm. which, yes. is, which is the foundation of, of my, you know, belief system. And I pray, I pray, Howard and Dr. Adam, that the three of us can come into this with the intention of love and healing to say, you know, that we are all one. And this facade of what appearances we have, you know, is meaningless. That just makes us a little special and a little unique and a little interesting. But we are all one. And, um, and, and hopefully, you know, in the next generations, they're going to overcome those differences. Yes. Yep. Your message resonates today better than it probably did would have 20, 30 years ago. The message you have is the message that people need to listen to because we're, we're in trouble as a nation and lo- love and peace and happiness and, and spiritual thinking are some of the things we need to consider more than whether or not, uh, you know, something's going on politically. Oh, yes. Well, I, I see that. And, and Adam, you know, Adam and I talk about this quite a bit is that that's an old paradigm. It's the past. And that's how I identify it. Um, and it's something that we've all had to live through to learn lessons. God help us. Yes. But um, going forward, you know, um, I think I think that the next generation and the generations to come are going to see it much, much differently. I mean, one world, one sky, one, you know, one land of uh, that just expands over many waters. And um, and then just for the sake of let all the trees come back. And, uh, and, and, and create the, the real, you know, internet that, that uh, <laughs> we're, we're living with now through the wires, but I want to live through them, through the roots. Yeah, yeah. Good luck with the trees. I hope you're right. It's, uh, uh, it's <laughs> something, uh, yeah. But I think that, um, you know, it really speaks to what we're talking about today and, and how I think you're so perceptive in singing about Donna's career and of course you are because besides being a fan you're also an academic of rock music um of how much we do talk about these ideas of what happened in the 60s and I wasn't there unfortunately but I would have liked to have been but what happened in the 60s has continued to grow and it's taken a while and there were sidesteps as Donna talks about as we're going into her story in the 70s it's really about the Watergate era which really changed where I think the world was going during the 60s but it has been able to somewhat pick up in recent years and 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 that message and that hope of the 60s to develop albeit we are in scary um and uncertain times at the moment with what's going on yes yes you mentioned pf sloan i still think uh eve of destruction i love but he has a song called sins of the father or sins of the yes. family 
And mm-hmm. I mean, he was such an incredible songwriter. Yes. And of course, he, he was the grassroots. Uh, he was the whole, yes. whole whole business behind that. But but there's another one. What an incredible talent and his message. It's not rocket science, you know, the eve of destruction. I mean, here we are, 2021, and it still resonates. Sins That's of the family, true. you know. That is true. I know yesterday I was just listening to, what's the fellow's name? Lemmy. Lemmy from England, uh, singing mm-hmm. Eve of Destruction with the with the London Philharmonic or the Royal Philharmonic yeah. in London. Yeah. It's just yeah. an amazing recording of that song. It well, really he, becomes quite majestic. Well, here, here's a great Lemmy story. I'm back with Jimmy McCracklin at the at a rockabilly event about, oh, probably 25 years ago. And Lemmy, of course, was the lead singer of Motorhead. And he shows up and I'm introduced to him. I well, wait a minute. You're the lead singer of Motorhead. He says, hey, I'm a rockabilly singer. I could never do anything commercially with rockabilly music. So I'm, I'm fronting Motorhead. But what, what a decent guy. And he knows more about American rockabilly music than most Americans. And he's from Northern England. Mm, yes. Well, I know another guy, um, Dick Dickerson. He's, he's another guy that knows all yep. heck of a Yeah, lot. I know Deke. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Deke is, Deke is absolutely incredible. Well, <laughs> and you sound so youthful that, you know, for a man with your experience, you know, you have maintained, um, your youthfulness and well, I, thank you. I look forward to at some point reconnecting with both of yes. you. Thank and, you. Um, and reminiscing for, you know, the music that we all love and just fills our hearts and our souls with so much joy. And we also look forward to reading your books and 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 sharing your books. And, we'll and you can to, ex- oh I'm sorry. I was just gonna say we we'll have to make sure you get that autograph of uh, from Jared who That's uh, right. <laughs> The lost baggie. He is the lost. You were reading my mind. Plus, plus a plus a, a surprise. A surprise. Another yeah. surprise in the mail. Well, here, here's what you do. Go home to Jared and say, "I don't know about this podcast." Howard said he was a fan of yours and not mine. <laughs> <laughs> and then just stop and see if. And then, of course, please tell him you're kidding. That wasn't the case. Oh no! But... Oh no! No, I I'm with you. I, it's mutual. I'm a great fan of him. <laughs> Well, the fantastic baggies were so great, and they were kind of lost with the Beach Boys and you know the Rivieras and mm-hmm. oh every other mm-hmm. every other surf rock group on on the planet. With that pretty blonde hair and that bikini you wear, you're a surfer boy's dream come true. It's yeah, it's just that that time 
when you were in front of the cameras there in the mid sixties, it was just wonderful. It really was. And I'm so glad you were there. I wished I would have known you were at Shindig. Oh God, I had a crew cut and, uh, <laughs> I, you know, you know, I looked, I look like a dork. Now I look like an old <laughs> dork, but yeah, I had, I had horn rim glasses and a crew cut and I had fun, but then I had to let my hair grow up. I, probably because of you, Donna, you know, finally oh. I let, let, let the crew cut go in 67. I was, uh, it took me three years after the Beatles. So I did that. <laughs> well, Donna does have a, have a hobby of cutting hair and she did cut one of the turtles hair on Shindig and, and they had oh, to I, use, yeah. Yeah. They had to use a pre-record because his hair didn't match up, but uh, so she does, she does have a, a hobby with hair. I love that. I love that. Yes, yes. My my husband, you know, they, they have to put up with my my shears. You know. <laughs> what, did, can you can you before you go give me some of your thoughts on Warner Brothers? Because I know you oh, have a very absolutely. very close very close connection there. Mm. And oh, this I'd works. Love to. This works I'd great to, because Howard. this is actually what we speak about in this episode. So that's awesome. Yes, you know, it was quite unique when I became involved with Reprise and Reprise and Warner Records were in this little Quonset hut across the street from the main Warner Brothers movie lot. And it wasn't taken very seriously, even though Frank Sinatra, you know, started Reprise and with Mo Austin's help. And um, there was an air of total respect for the artist. And um, between uh, the major executive, Steve Ross, and then Mo Austin and Joe Smith, who were running the recording companies, hiring young people like, like Lenny Warrenker, my first husband, and other you know, very young um, trailblazers in the music mm -hmm. field, uh, who also were so committed to the music and um, not as much as, you know, the cutthroat kind of idea of, you know, what an artist could produce the first record out. And if it didn't work, you know, they were gone. No, they would they would sign an artist. For instance, I mean, I knew closely Randy Newman. You know, they'd sign an artist for five years, give them a chance to cultivate their ability to go into a studio and really learn who they were. And uh, and the proof is in the pudding. And I saw it over and over again, the, the, the years that I was married uh, to my first husband and close to those artists. And then as well, uh, you know, I remained friends with, with Mo and his wife, Evelyn. And I saw the continuation of that just total respect even when they went on to dreamworks and you know and warner brothers kind of changed their their modality now now my first husband lenny is back you know as an executive consultant and you know in the studio when he needs to be and when he wants to be again assisting artists you know to bring out the beauty and and all of what they have the opportunity to share with us and not put money first mm -hmm. that's amazing Yes. You, you, uh, can I make a comment? Yes. I'm working on my Van Morrison volume three of the five volume biography, 73 to 79. And you just ruined my chapter on Warner Brothers, Donna. I don't know <laughs> if I can, I don't know if I can forgive you for that. <laughs> no, what you, what you say is I'm so glad you said all this because I'm dealing with exactly what you said and I didn't know which way to go. And this really helps me. And I think, I think everything you're saying is accurate because as you know, it's, it's easy for the artist to say, well, the label's terrible. 
and, and I'm fine. And, and there's a lot of that when people who write about rock music, but we forget that some of the labels, and I know Warner was one of them, uh, Randy Newman couldn't sell any records for a couple, uh, couple albums. And then, of course, he turned into a megastar. So what mm-hmm. you're saying really absolutely rings true with me. And that, and funny, that's how I'm writing this chapter. And I wasn't sure I was right about it. So I feel better. Thank you. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I look forward to seeing that. Absolutely. Um, Yes, thank you. Thank you for thank you for taking this time of yours, Howard. And and even though we haven't officially met your wife, please tell her to thank you for sharing her her beloved with us on on our podcast. Love's a secret well, weapon. Okay, and I th- I think your message is a great one, and I'll I'll tell her that you you sent her your condolences. So uh, <laughs> excuse me, I don't I mean, uh, and I don't mean condolences. I mean congratulations. Sorry, the wrong c word. But yeah, no, I think that what's your your message to be serious for a moment? I think is very important because we're in a we're at a point of crisis in this country, and that message is one we need to look back on and maybe reconsider it. Yes, indeed, Absolutely. I de- definitely echo your sentiments. Well, thank you, Howard, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate it. Now, I, I can say I'm a fan with a connection because it would have never dawned on me when I was sneaking around L.A. into Shindig as a young kid that I would be talking to you. So I really uh, enjoy yeah. it. One of my one of my students, Anna Beta, is one of your biggest fans. She just loves oh. everything you do. Oh, so fantastic. Please yes. give her a hug when you see her. I will. Thank you. With you Is what I'm now praying for The things that we too could plan Will make my dreams come true Whoa!
Yes, sir.